Thank you. It's great to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning and uh, worshiping God, worshiping our, our, our King. And thank you, Lewis, for your, your kind words. You know, he would sit on the front row of, of class, and uh, I, I wish I could say, no. <laughs> he was always engaged and very, he, you have people that pull out from you by the questions they ask, the intensity that they bring, and, um, and that was... Uh, uh, that was Lewis. So I want to begin by sharing a story. I'm going to start by telling you maybe a little bit about myself. When I was, man, as early as I can remember, um, my dad told my sister and I that, you know, part of becoming adults, part of being an adult was owning our own house. Like when you get older, you know, that's kind of when you've, you've arrived, you, you, you own your own home. And he owned, um, property. And so that was kind of his way of helping us along. In San Francisco, that's, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll just put it this way. I'm not an adult yet. <laughs> um, but my, um, when I was 23, we didn't live in the city at the time. We lived uh, in the valley. And my, uh, I met this beautiful girl. She had big brown eyes, and I was just like, oh, yes, this is the one. So I went to my dad, and I was like, I have, I have found the one. And uh, he's like, all right, but you need a house. You've got to be a man to have a... And so I was like, oh, man. So uh, he persuaded me not to have a honeymoon, to like, take all the money that I'd saved, not go on a honeymoon, and pour it into a house. Um, and uh, so that's what I did. We bought a little house for, I think it was $70,000 um, back in 1991. It's a long time ago. And um, things were great. I had a beautiful wife, a house, 700 square feet, I think. It was tiny, but hey, <laughs> I was an adult. I even had a dog in the backyard. Things were going well, and then God called my wife and I to San Francisco, so we left there and got rid of the house and moved here, and that's where things started kind of changing. Not at first, but our church community decided we really felt like God was leading us to purchase the property, so we did. We purchased this property. We were struggling financially. I said to my wife, hey, you know, why don't we move in to the church building space and uh, just temporary. A couple of months, you know, just kind of help things get along. And then we'll, you know, all that money we'd use for rent, we'll put toward helping the mortgage. It'll be, it'll be fine. All right, a couple months. Six years later, <laughs> um, yeah, there was no, it was like living in, um, it was, well, I'm not going to belabor the point. I want to, what I do want to say is that it did a work on the issues of shame and feelings of worth and value in my life. I always felt like during that period, I would walk around and I would, I would, I would think, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a good provider for my kids. I'm not a good dad. Something's wrong with me that I can't own a home. I'm not a good provider for my wife. And I had those feelings just begin to eat and gnaw away at me, feeling embarrassed, feeling ashamed. I know for some of you, they may think, really, a house? But for all of us, it's something. It may not be a house for you, but it might be 
standing around a group of friends and they start talking about what school they went to and they're all mentioning these Ivy League schools and you're like, oh, <laughs> what was that? Hey, how about them giants? Woo, they're doing great, aren't they? You know, you start shifting away, you feel a little bit of embarrassment or shame or maybe it's something that happened when you were a kid. Maybe it's a spouse that cheated on you and you feel like something's wrong with me. And that's what shame does. It kind of zeroes in on the heart and it confronts you and it makes you feel like there's something terribly amiss with who I am and my place in the world and I don't fit in. Something's not right. And um, if you've ever felt that way, if you've ever, ever experienced that, which all of us have and all of us do, it's part of the human dilemma and the human struggle, then our story today is going to resonate with you. The hero in today's story is going to really hit some spots in your own heart and probably will pull out from you honor and courage and call you into a place, a place in God. And our story is a story of, of shame. It's ugly. It's, it's incestuous. It's, it's uh, generations long worth of shame. And, um, and in talking about some of these heroes, we're talking about some of the um, doubts, some of them that experience doubts and fears and various other setbacks as they begin to walk in their journey of life. And our scripture reading comes from the very end of this book called Ruth, which is a book in these Old Testament scriptures, small little book, four chapters long. And I'm taking our reading, our first reading, from the end of that book. Ruth chapter four, it should be in your handout there if you'd like to, to follow along. Verse 14 says, this then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. I know some of you are going, what? I mean, there's so many pieces of scripture you could pull from and read. Really? Why are you opening up with a genealogy? Well, first, it's because our story is a smack dab in the middle of two stories. A story of a patriarch by the name of Judah and a story of a king by the name of David. And right in the middle of that is where our story happens. And I think there's a takeaway for us even in recognizing that. Sometimes it's not how a story begins or how a story ends that defines the story. Sometimes it's what happens right in the middle that's the defining point, the defining moment of that story. But I think there's more that we could walk away from with. Another reason why we opened up with a genealogy is to recalibrate our thinking on on the ancient Near East and its views of what constituted a story. See, for most of us, we think of stories as individual, personal, my little individual story in the world, the epic of me. But in that world, stories were much more grand. Stories went on for generations and you were like one frame in a video reel, one part of a much greater story. And we would be wise to recognize that maybe our story is not meant to resolve on its own. Maybe we're striving to resolve something on its own right here, right now, in that hyphen between the date of birth and the date of death. 
And maybe we are part of something that's much more grand than when you were born and when you die. Maybe we're part of resolving a greater story that's being told to the world. And so we pick up here this story of Ruth. Ruth is um, an idyllic and agrarian tale set in the barley fields of Bethlehem. There are no antagonists, no oppressive armies. Um, there's no miracles of parting waters or suns standing still or giants toppling over. There's no hopeful oracles of, uh, that, are, that are booming forth with sounds of the future. This is very ordinary, a very ordinary story much like ours, crafted with struggle and struggle that we really have to look very hard to find God in. In fact, Elie Wiesel says that it's a story where God is surprisingly passive. All the people in this narrative are good people, decent people, struggling with their past histories, their present stories, and their, their future destinies. And the story of Ruth begins really for us in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, with a character that we just read about. This is the family line of Perez. And this is where I want us to travel for just a moment so that we can really understand what happens and how this woman steps forth as a, I think, a, well worth, a worthy character for a hero of faith. Back when um, Israel was just 12 boys, before it was a big nation, there was one boy, his name was Judah. And Judah had two sons, uh, well, had three sons, but two older sons and one that was very young. The two older sons, one's name was um, Er, and the other's, name, the other's name was Onan. And um, Er uh, decided that he was going to get married as he, he came of age, and he's like, I'm going to get married. And so he went out and he found a girl, a, a Canaanite girl. Her name was Tamar. And um, the story doesn't give us much detail about Er. All that we know is that his dad was not pleased with this, this marriage, did not like what was going down. And something shady and sinister happens with Er. And, uh, and we're one, like one sentence or two into his story, and he dies. And uh, his, his wife is left childless. And um, there was a custom in those days that's really important for us to understand. It was called the custom of the leveret. And the custom of the leveret might be a little bit difficult maybe for you to, um, hmm, um, for us in our culture to understand um, the context of how, these, how this worked. But in that world, you lived on, you had, I guess you could say, eternal life, or you would live on in your children. So if you didn't have any kids, then it was like your family name dies. Now... I need to warn you. I need to just kind of stop right here and give a uh, disclaimer. Um, what, what's, what I'm going to share here is the PG-13 version. The R-rated version you'll have to go to your Bible for. <laughs> but I've toned it down, and so uh, listener discretion is advised. Um, so he doesn't. So he passes away. His his father looks over at his. Uh, next son, and he says, you need to perform the custom of the leveret. I want you to go into your brother's wife and um, have sexual relations with her and raise up a son so that his name can live on. And typically, this was not something that a person wanted to do, um, because if your brother dies, that means you get his share of the estate. If, you, if your brother has a son, well, then the share of the estate goes to his son. 
And what's happening here is you've got to raise up a son to your brother so that this, that share can go to him and you won't get that part of the share. So anyway, all that we get from this story is that um, Tamar, evidently Tamar was, was hot um, or was attractive. And um, so he's like, sure, dad, got it covered. So he goes in, and, but he is enjoying this responsibility so much that he decides he's going to perform some kind of um, primitive contraception. And so he, he refuses to uh, uh, conceive a child with her. And this goes on, and then something weird happens in the story, and he dies. Like in, in the middle of all of this happening, he dies. So now... If you're Tamar, two sons have died. Two men that you've been with have died. Uh, something, is something wrong with me? You know, I mean, what's, what's happening here? What's going on? And so she starts feeling a little bit of shame. And the dad steps in. Judah, he steps in. He's like, you know what? I've got one more son. He's really young. You're going to have to wait. And the little son is like going, Dad, I do not want to sleep with that woman. <laughs> I want to live a long life, you know, just <laughs> please have mercy on me. And so um, Judah sends her off to be with her dad, and uh, his son grows up, Shayla grows up, becomes an, uh, an adult. Judah does not give uh, his, Shayla to her. Instead, um, she realizes, you know, my childbearing years are coming to a close. I don't have a child my whole purpose in this culture, in this world, is bearing children. I have no worth, no value. I've got to fix this. So she decides that she's going to dress up like a harlot and go sit out on the side of the road where Judah walks by and that she's going to sleep with her father-in-law. I know. <laughs> when I read it, I said the same thing. I was like, this can't be in the Bible. <laughs> this is a holy book. <laughs> and... Uh, He's walking down the road. He looks over and he sees this, uh, this um, attractive girl sitting on the side of the road. She's got a head covering on. She's wearing perfume. She propositions him. He comes in. She says, uh, he, he says, how much? And she says, uh, I'll take a goat. And he's like, all right, I've got a goat. I've, this is a different world, folks. I, I've got a goat back at, with the flocks. And so I'll, I'll send my servant with the goat and he'll bring it to you. She's like, no, I need a deposit. He's like, okay, well, um, here's my staff. See, it says Judah on it. And here's my ring. See, it says Judah on it. You know who I am? It'll come back. So she takes the ring, she takes the staff, and then he steps out. They're finished with the transaction. He steps out the back of the tent. She steps out the front. She's gone. He sends the servant back. The servant comes back. She's not there. The servant goes back. There's no woman. There's no prostitute on the side of the road up there. I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, oh, I must have lost my staff and my ring. Hmm, funny thing. All right. So he just tells people he lost that. He's going to have a new one made, whatever. Three months later, all of a sudden, someone comes to him and said, you will not believe what I just heard. Your daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he's like, what? Oh, yeah, she's pregnant. He's like, bring her out here. We are going to kill her. There's no way there's going to be any shame put on my name. I am Judah. And no shame's coming to my family. I'm going to be the defender of my sons. Bring her out here. She has no right to sleep with another man. So she comes out. The, 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 the entourage is there. They're getting ready to follow through with this ceremony of doing away with her. And she says, uh, oh, wait, before you kill me, I would like to reveal the father. 
who the father is. And he said, okay, all right, let's have it. Who's the dad? She's like, the father of, the of, of, who, of my child is whoever owns, and then she pulls out the staff that says Judah and the ring that says Judah, whoever owns these. <laughs> and he's like, huh? Oh, no, no. Oh, hey, uh, yeah. <clears throat> it's quite an embarrassing moment. He is so angry with her that he puts her away. But God vindicates her. And she has two boys. Remember, two of his sons have died. She has two boys to carry on the family name. One of them we just read about a moment ago in our genealogy. His name was Perez. Now, what all of us, I guess you could say, can glean from this story is that Tamar's story is a story that for all of us who think that somehow if we can just get vindication, if we can just get even, then our life will be happy. And the sad story of Tamar, and it's not a real, very redemptive tale, is that she does get even but her life doesn't end happily ever after. She's tucked away in obscurity. She brings shame to the family name and her own boys grow up knowing that our mother had relations with our grandfather and this all came about, we're here because of that. And people would always kind of sneer at their family. You know, don't marry into that clan. They've got a checkered past. You don't want to be associated with that. And Tamar really is a story that tells us that getting even never gets you ahead. So we need another story. We, we, we need a story that's redemptive, a story that goes beyond getting even, that kind of raptures our heart and catches us into a place of, of honor. And that's where Ruth comes in. Now, lest you mistakenly think that Ruth is going to redeem the, the Perez family name and her honorable name, you need to know that her own family ethnicity is tainted as well. She is a Moabite, and she comes from a very tainted and checkered past as well. So it's not going to be in and of herself that she'll be able to do that or through her family name. But when we open up the book of Ruth, the first sentence clues us into what's happening. It says to us, we're told that there is a famine in the land. And then the second sentence, we are told that this, this famine causes a family of four to relocate, a dad, a mom by the name of Naomi, and two boys to relocate for the sake of economic hardship. And so they immigrate to another country. They immigrate to the country of Moab. And that's where we're told the uh, Perez clan boys do something taboo. They, they marry two Moabite girls. We are a couple sentences in, and our setting goes from bad to worse, awkwardly worse. Not only have they married two Moabite girls, but the dad dies. And so now Naomi, the mom, is a widow. And then her two sons die. And this is starting to sound an awful, eerily like the previous story. Two sons dead. Then in the middle of the paragraph, while in this in this foreign land, Naomi says, I've got to get out of here. I've got to go home. And what you need to know about the word famine is famine in the Old Testament and the Hebrew thought is a word that's a metaphor for shame. And we're really being told that this is a story about the redemption from shame. It starts off with in, in a shameful setting and it begins to move us through. 
We're led to believe that, that something must be wrong with Naomi, that she, she must be cursed, that she has lost her husband and her sons, and she's filled with shame, and, and the curse of Onan and Ur is on her family. She should have never moved to Moab. She should have never allowed her sons to, to marry Moabites. And all she wants to do is get even. All she wants to do is to get back home, to, to make it back to ground zero, to get back to Bethlehem and to die there in peace with her cousins and her friends. That's all she wanted. So she turns around and she starts heading home. And this is where the story takes a radical twist. Ruth, her daughter-in-law, debuts on the scene and she begins acting more like a daughter than a daughter-in-law not even like a Moabite, but more like a, more like a daughter of God. Ruth elbows her way into Naomi's life, caring and providing for Naomi. Ruth refuses to stay in Moab. She returns to Naomi. And, and, and when Ruth arrives in Bethlehem, she works long and late hours out in the Bethlehem barley fields, picking up scraps and leftover grain. And all Naomi hoped for was, was to die in Bethlehem. But then Ruth, but then Ruth, Ruth takes initiative. Ruth meets a wealthy family man named Boaz, and we wonder by this time in the story if Naomi can have a son and save her husband's family name. But Naomi is too old. But Ruth, Ruth offers Naomi to make herself available so that she can have a child and continue the family name, Naomi's family name. And so Boaz, the wealthy family member, performs the custom of the leveret with Ruth to keep Naomi's family name alive. But there is something very different about this story and the Judah Tamar story. Something beautiful happens next. The story that, that starts in shame explodes with honor. Not only does, does Boaz fulfill the family obligation, but he does so joyfully, lovingly, honorably, happily. He doesn't just perform this custom, this obligatory custom but he is willing to marry her, to bring her into his home, and to love her for the rest of his life. And the story that ended so horribly for Tamar now has a beautiful, redemptive twist to it. And this mother, this woman, Ruth, gives birth to a son, and she enters and becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David, a Moabite. All of a sudden, we have a story that's beautiful of a, of a, of a widowed girl living on welfare uh, and a wealthy man that comes along and rescues her and helps her. We have a story of someone stepping in and redeeming a situation. And all of us in this room, right here, right now, long for stories like this in our life. We long for those places of shame and ache and hurt to be redeemed, for there to be a happily ever after, a riding off into the sunset, somehow something that resolves all of the conflict and the brokenness of our lives. So, what does the writer want to tell us about redeeming our past and our present and our future from shame? I'm going to move through five points really quick, so get ready. The first one comes from chapter 2, verse 3. And this is in your handout if you'd like to follow along. It says that um, Ruth went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Another translation says, um, it chanced that she came upon the plot of Boaz. Now, what you need to know about this is there was no chance going on here. If you're reading before this, you know very well that she doesn't chance upon it. She has every intention of going to this field. 
So the Hebrew scholars are kind of perplexed by what, what's being meant here, what's happening here. And Robert Alter says that this is hardly an accident because that is precisely where she intended to go. And this peculiar Hebrew formulation suggests that there is a concordance between human initiative and divine providence. As it turned out means the convergence of her initiative and divine providence happened at this moment. That God's providence engages her initiative. In a world where waters are not parting and clouds are not forming, in a world where there's no miracles happening, where there's no pillar of fire leading people to a wilderness, in, in this kind of a world where it seems like God is passive, we see how somebody engages redemption. And it's this woman taking initiative. And the author wants us to know that divine providence works. And Ruth is, is perfectly cast for this role. She has no promise. No angel shows up at her doorstep and says, hey, look, if you go on this journey, things are going to work out really well for you. She doesn't get any promise, any hope. There's no prophet pointing his finger saying, you need to go on this long journey. God does not show up in a vision. She just takes initiative and moves and goes. So what kind of initiative does God work in concordance with? That may be your question. God always has entered into initiative that sparked from hearts of faith. And here Ruth shows us what faith is, which leads us to the next point. The author is going to make about the kind of faith that is at work here. And we read this in chapter 1, verse 16. I've included this as well in your handout. And if you have a pen, you want to underline a couple of points in this. Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. See, faith means committing to a future that we cannot see. She cannot see what's going to happen. She has no picture of how things are going to turn out, but she commits. She steps out and she commits, which leads us to another question. How does she make a journey to a place that she's never been before? And it's in the story as well. She reaches over and she holds on to Naomi. She cleaves to her. She holds on. She says, I won't let go. And in doing this, we pick up in verses 22 of the first chapter and verse 11 of the second chapter, this next point. She's committing to a future that she cannot see, and we see Naomi returns from Moab accompanied by Ruth. You can underline that, accompanied by. And then in verse 11, Boaz, in speaking to Ruth, says, I've been told about how you have done for your mother and what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. Leaving. This is a strong Hebrew word. It means getting out, getting away from, to go, to leave. And this highlights our third point. Heroes make journeys to places that they have never been before, but it's almost like they're going home. Hope means returning to a place that we have never been before. I know, it's not a mistake, returning to a place we've never 
been before. As paradoxical as this sounds, this is exactly what the story of Ruth gets at. And this is part of the journey of redemption from shame. We find ourselves returning to a place that we have never been. Let me just say, if you're visiting here for the, for the first time and you're sitting there and you, it's like, it's my first time here, but I just feel so at home. That could be a whisper of God in your heart right now that's just saying, I want to redeem you. I want to redeem you. And you're sensing that and you're feeling that. Or maybe you've been coming here for a long, 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 long time, but you feel different. This place isn't different, but you feel different. It could be like a Naomi returning home. I've been here before, but I'm not the same person. I'm different. Something's different about me. Let me just suggest that it could be possible that it's God breathing into your heart right now how that he wants to redeem you, how he wants to bring his power of redemption into your life. And what does that mean? What does it mean that God wants to redeem us? That's our point here. What does that really mean? I think there's a couple of aspects to this. First, we talk about redemption. It means that our past shame doesn't have to define our present situation. That's right. Our our parents' past, our family's past, our genealogy's past, that does not have to define who we are presently. Remember what I said about how in the middle of the story, something can happen that can change the definition of a story? That's what's happening here. And although I haven't included this in your handout, there's this verse in the fourth chapter, the 13th verse. It just says, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. This is very different from Tamar. This is very different from the custom of the leveret and the stories that have all ended badly, awkwardly, and dishonorably. This time, God interjects himself into history. Up to this point, God's been passive. But if you're reading through the book of Ruth, this sticks out large. It's like someone has highlighted it. This is the first time that God is doing something. And in the moment of this beautiful love of Boaz loving this Moabitess that nobody else wants, of him caring for her, of him redeeming her, of him redeeming her family, of him willing to give his inheritance away. In the moment of that, God says, I'm going to cause her to have a child. Not just any child. But there is something in this story that I want the world to know about. This will be the great-grandmother of the greatest king of Israel. Now, for sure, she'll never see that happen but it's her story. She'll never participate in that. She'll never be there when David is anointed, but it's her story. Which leads us to this last point. Redemption means our past has new meaning. God does not necessarily want to take your past and hide it. He doesn't want to change it. He's not like, oh man, they got that happened in their life. Oh, what are we going to do with that? Oh, that's not what he wants to do. He just wants to enter that story. And by entering into that story, change what it means. Change how it has shamed you. He wants to bring honor out of something that was shameful. Yeah. 
you'd never believe what happens. In a book that's written a long, long time later, Matthew writes at the very beginning of his book, and he starts off with a genealogy. And he goes through the same thing that we just read at the beginning of our, of our time together. He goes through a guy by the name of Judah. He talks about Tamar sleeping with Judah. He reads that, lists that out. Then he comes down and he talks about uh, uh, another, another harlot named Rahab. And then he talks about Ruth, the Moabitess. And he continues on and continues on. He gets to the very end. And he says, who was the child of, who was the child of, who was the son of, who was the son of Jesus. What? Oh, yeah. See, here's the thing that we all need to know. God, his name cannot be tainted by your shame. God's name is so good, so true, so beautiful, so powerful that it can step, it can attach itself to your life and he brings you up. It does not bring him down. He brings you up to where he is. He puts it, have you ever thought about this? He is the God and when he decided to define who he was, he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He defines himself in terms of his relationships with people. He defines himself in terms of his relationship with you. He is the God of Ruth. He is the God of David. He is Jesus. God, our Savior. God, our Redeemer. So what does that mean for us here? Well, I don't know what shame it is that you've experienced in your life. I shared a part of mine, the house. Yours may be educational, connected to education, maybe connected to how much money you make or don't make. It may be connected to who your parents are. I don't know. But I know this, that doesn't matter to God. And if you're willing to trust him, like Ruth, just put your faith in, step out and initiate trusting in him, you will find him to be a faithful redeemer. And he will come through for you again and again and again. And he will take a checkered past and he will turn it into a beautiful story of a heroine or a hero that does great things for God. In a moment, praise uh, team and worship team is going to come out and they're going to lead us in worship and they're going to call us and woo us into just connecting ourselves with God, holding on to God. And uh, we'll have a time to give while they're doing that. But before that happens, I want to pray for us right now. I want to pray for you. I, I, I just feel in my heart right now that someone sitting here, someone right now, God's love is just reaching into you. And he's saying, I'm going to make something out of your life. It's not over. It's not over. Something beautiful is going to come out of this famine. Something beautiful is going to come out of this story. Let me pray. Father, none of this would even be possible, possible if it wasn't for you offering to enter into history through Jesus Christ. You offering your name to be attached to the likes of us. 
broken and flawed, weak and shameful. And yet, here you are, pursuing us, chasing us. In this space right here, right now, your breath so, so present. We feel redemption. We feel forgiveness. We feel love. The love of God embracing us. There's hope that things are going to get better. There's, there's hope that things are going to turn out okay. There's hope that God is in this moment. And we embrace that. We confess that we trust in the name of Jesus. And we find our hope in his gracious work, his atoning work on the cross. And we receive that. And Father, I pray for everyone that is here right now that's experiencing your healing of redemption the flow of your life over their hearts. Continue that work. Complete their story. And may all of us find our stories resolving in your story. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.